In the last episode of Inside the Crime, we heard how Una Linsky, a 19-year-old civil servant, went missing just minutes after stepping off her bus home from work. Everyone was out looking for her. Every neighbour around was out looking for her. We also heard how, not long after Una got off that bus, screams were heard coming from the fields along her route home. Lots of people also reported seeing a strange car in the area. Her cousin, Porik Gohan, got a good look at the driver. It was this middle-aged man, well-dressed, suit, tie, well-groomed. In this episode of Inside the Crime, we'll take a closer look at how the investigation developed after Una failed to return home on that cold October evening in 1971. The multiple sightings of the Ford car were significant. So too was the question of whether it was a Zodiac or a Zephyr. Rumours of a runaway girl vanished almost as quickly as Una had. And right from the start, all of the evidence pointed to an abduction. Somebody took her. Somebody took her off that lane that night. She didn't deserve what happened to her. Within days of Una's disappearance, the Garda murder squad arrived on the scene and within weeks they were convinced they'd solved the case. But had they? Martin, how's it going? Frank is my name. How are you, Frank? Lovely yeah. to meet you. Yeah. Ashley. Ashley nice to meet you in person again. How are you? Yeah, Where are you? Where? Bad, You're still working? Yeah, yeah, still working, yeah. Martin Conmey still lives on Porterstown Lane. In fact, his home is right next door to the one he grew up in. Like most of those on the lane back in the 70s, his father was a farmer, dairy mostly. Martian was one of four boys and he had two sisters, including Mary, whom we heard from in the last episode. She's married to Una Linsky's cousin, Porik. In October 1971, Martian was 20 years old, working on Coyle's farm near Dunshockland. He gave his mother £5 a week to help with the running of the house. His best friends were Dick Donnelly and Marty Kerrigan. At 23 years old, Dick was the eldest of the three. As a boy, he left Ritoth National School in sixth class, so he never sat his primary search exams. Back then, a good primary search could help you get a job, but Dick was never shy of work. He was a big, strong man and got plenty of work on farms and building sites. He was the only one of his pals who had a car, a battered 1964 Ford Zephyr. A dodgy paint job left it with a strange colour, which Dick described as amber gold. Aside from amber gold, it was covered in rust and had a hole in the exhaust, but it was Dick's pride and joy and a great source of independence for the lads, as Martin now recalls. Everyone in the lane had no decent jokes, bangers of cars. Like, Dick, I know a car at all myself. I would depend on Dick for yeah. transport. So big speakers in the back window, Dick, and these big eight-track uh, tapes. I don't know how you remember them, Dave. They were about that thick. <laughs> he was turning them up, and he was, he was mad listening to, was it Philomena Begley, I think he was listening to. He'd give it full blast there. He'd deafen you. He's <laughs> <laughs> unreal. The amount of people that have told us about Dick's car and they would say like you'd hear it before you'd see it yeah yeah well you'd hear it coming yeah because yeah. exhaust could be dragging on the road at those holes right every car was when I did get a car it was the same as well yeah it's falling off and yeah as I say about the isoban you had to have a 
uh, attended that. Those holes, bits falling off them everywhere, and sort of the exhaust is the same too. You had to held together a wire. And yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't be passing an NCT you nowadays. Jesus, you wouldn't even attempt to go in there. You'd be locked, <laughs> you'd be locked up. Marcy Kerrigan was the youngest of the trio. He was just 19. At five foot seven, he was also the smallest. He was slim and very slight in build. He had long hair, loved motorbikes and listening to music. In 1971, he was living with his father and three of his sisters, Eileen, Katie and Anne. You may remember Katie and Anne from the last episode. Their mother died a few years beforehand, so Eileen ran the house with the help of her younger siblings. Here's Anne's memories of Marty back then. We all just kind of, when our mother died, we were all kind of just going our own way and doing our own thing. And, you know, he he went off to work in the morning on his little scooter and came home at lunchtime for his lunch and went back to work. And he would be home before us in the evening. And Eileen would normally have the dinner organised and all he'd have to do was light the cooker underneath it and light the fire. They were his jobs. Martin, Marty and Dick were inseparable. The three amigos, always in each other's company, mostly driving around in Dick's Zephyr without a care in the world. And that's exactly what they were up to on the evening Una went missing. Like most people on Porterstown Lane, Martin remembers that day as if it were yesterday. In fact, not a day goes by that he doesn't think about it. He'd spent the day pulling Brussels sprouts on Coyle's farm. And when it was almost time to clock off, the loud rumble of his lift home could be heard in the distance. Dick picked me up and it was actually where, where, where I was working that we decided to go this other route. Because if, if we were working in, in, in Kyle's yard, we would have went by Retopa, but this was nearer. So Dick has um, picked you up. He was working on another part of the farm and he picked you up. Can you remember where you headed after that then? how well, we, headed far, we headed home a different route, which would be heading for Marty, Marty Kerrigan's place. So we stopped there for Marty had a chat and then what Katie decided to, to ask Dick would he go down to the shop, Barnes' shop for briquettes. I should say the Katie that Martin speaks of here is Marty Kerrigan's sister. We've already heard from her and we'll soon hear from her again. She was christened Kathleen, but everyone called her Katie. And for reasons that will become clear later on, this unplanned trip to Barnes' shop is a crucial part of the story. More on that later though. For now, Let's return to our chat with Martin. Was Barron's shop far from Marty's house? No, no, it wouldn't be. It'd be about oh, it'd be a couple of hundred metres maybe, you know. It wasn't too far, no. So you've dropped Kathleen down to pick up the bale of briquettes? Yeah. And dropped her back to the house then, back we to dropped Marty's? dropped her back, yeah, yeah. And then you went about your evening? Yeah, well, Dick dropped, Dick dropped me off at my house. We'd come up that way and drop me off there. My mum heard me getting out of the car and saying good luck and I'll see you later. They decided to come back for me to go out for a drive that night. So when I just came around the corner, we hit the know what we I think we'd outside toilet or that time I'm not sure, but I just around the corner just to, and I seen Dick's car going up the road and the brake lights coming on over in the corner there. The reason Dick had to brake was because there was a parked car on the road hampering his progress. It was opposite the ESB pylon, 
facing down the laneway. From where he was standing outside his house, Martian could only see its headlights, but Dick and Marty got a good look at it up close. Marty thought it was a Ford Zephyr, just like Dick's, but Dick knew better. After spotting the twin headlights, he was certain it was a Zodiac. Both were large cars and there wasn't enough room on the narrow road for the two of them, so Dick had to drive on the grassy verge to get by. As far as he could tell, there was nobody inside, but he did manage to see what appeared to be billheads or business receipts on the front passenger seat. It was very unusual to see a Zodiac parked on the lane like that. He noted the reg plate as best he could. It had three letters, followed by three numbers. He thought he saw the letter J, and while he didn't pick up the first number in the sequence, he was sure it ended in 00. Could this have been the same car that Martin's younger brother Sean saw? Remember, he noticed a car parked across from that pylon and a shadowy figure moving from the front of it to the back with a flashlight. If the timings were correct, Sean would have seen that just minutes after Dick and Marty drove by. Anyway, after squeezing past the Zodiac, Dick drove home for his own dinner. He lived near Ratoth, just past Ferry House Racecourse. Marty stayed in the car listening to the radio. Unimpressed with Dick's taste in music, he moved the dial to Radio Luxembourg. Totally oblivious to how much his life was about to change. Back on Porterstown Lane, Martian was getting ready to go out. He'd arranged to meet a girl he was doing a line with. That's 1970s lingo for dating, by the way. According to his mother, Martian came home sometime after seven o'clock that evening. She remembered the sound of a car at the gate and presumed it was Dick dropping him off. After eating his dinner, he put on a clean jumper and swapped his wellies for some shoes before heading out the door again less than an hour later. I think I had a date that night with <laughs> Gerland and Shockland, so I think we picked her up and then we went to Ryan's in Retort. And it's only when we were coming back, there was a lot of people at the, the pylon up there. And that's when the, we stopped to see what was up. And that's when we found out that Una was missing. And they asked Dick, they asked us if we see Anne and Dick gave her a description of the car there. But, and it's a strange thing where the car was parked right in front of Linsky's field, which I found, you know, as if there was someone, someone that knew the area. Because there's three fields over there. They're called the three acres. But that's a strange thing. Maybe it's just a coincidence. So you've gone to Ratoth, did you say Ryan's up was a pub in yeah, Ratoth at the yeah, time? Yeah. A few drinks. And then when you came back, that was the first you heard that's of That's the first we heard of it over there. There was a crowd of people standing there. They said Una hadn't come home. After coming across the search party, Dick and the gang continued down the lane, stopping off at Martin's house so he could get some money. From there, they drove down to the bottom of the lane to collect another friend, Irene Ennis. At that point, she too didn't know that Una was missing. After a few drinks in a nearby pub, Dick dropped Marty and the girls home. By the time they got back to Porterstown Lane, just before midnight, everyone was still out looking for Una. So Martian went home, put his wellies back on and joined the search. I even took days off work where I was searching the fields and everywhere and driving around. And see, nobody believed it like that and like that had happened. You know, you just couldn't let your head. Everyone thought she'd just gone away or 
I never actually was out her anywhere in the pub that I was talking to her, but like anytime you would see her on the road walking and she was lovely, quiet, lovely smile and that, you know. So. She was friendly. Oh, very, yeah, very friendly, yeah. So you guys went out to join the search. Yeah. And yeah. had you heard about, like a lot of people would have seen the Zodiac. Was there chat about that, about what people had heard and seen on that particular evening? Can you remember? Oh, yeah. Well, everyone was given a description of the car. See, I didn't really see the car, just the front lights, but Dick gave a description of it. Like, like Parik looked straight into his face, and then there was another man that he nearly ran into his van. I think Donnelly was the name. No relation of Dick now. And he looked straight into the man's face and, and seen another man in the back struggling with the girl. The man in the van that Martin speaks of was a local farmer called James Donnelly. While on his way to milk some cows just after seven that evening, he said a large, dark-coloured Ford car came speeding out of Porterstown Lane. He described it as being dark green or black in colour, an old type of car, but well looked after. He, like so many others, wasn't sure if it was a Zephyr or a Zodiac, but he thought it had four headlights, which would suggest it was the latter, a Zodiac. The car was going so fast that he had to slow down and veer to the right to avoid a crash. While doing so, he got a good look at the driver, whom he described as middle-aged, maybe mid to late 40s, with a reddish complexion, fairly stoutish in build, with balding hair, which was grey at the back and sides. More than that, he also saw a girl standing up in the back of the car with another man who appeared to be trying to kiss her. In his words... She looked overpowered with fright. She had her back to the driver, and while he didn't get a good look at her, he could tell she had shoulder-length hair and was of medium build. James Donnelly didn't know Una. He didn't hear she was missing until the following night, and it would be another four days before he made a statement. So in the immediate aftermath of her disappearance, the guards focused on what poor Gohan saw as he walked home that night. A huge Garda hunt for a small, well-dressed man driving a Ford Zephyr or Ford Zodiac got underway. Back on the lane, the search for Una intensified, as Porik now remembers. Well, the next couple of days uh, we spent um, searching. I don't remember who organised the search. Was it probably maybe one of the, the guards that was there? We would have went to covered most of the bridges that was, a, say, in the area. Um, the likes of, there was a bridge there going into Dumbina, um, covered there. Um, uh, Batterstown, uh, different areas. Any place there was a bridge um, along the railway track, we would just search it, walk it. Maybe, um, I think we went into uh, maybe one or two different woods there just to search uh, uh, gateways um, that was it that's what, what we'd done for the next couple of days As time went on the search for Una expanded with the locals out in force offering whatever help they could Overgrown ditches along Porterstown Lane were cleared but revealed nothing The army was called in and tracker dogs sniffed for clues but again nothing Superintendent PJ Kane from Trimgar the station led the search operation from the Linsky's farmhouse, which had become a base of sorts for the guards. At the weekend, an appeal for volunteers was made at all masses in County Meath, and with the harvest now complete, farmers from near and far arrived in droves. 
They searched the fields around Dunshocklin and Rathoth. Garda divers plunged into nearby ponds, streams and rivers. Septic tanks and wells were searched. They found nothing. Una had seemingly vanished without a trace. By now, local and national media had descended on the quiet country lane. Superintendent Kane assured them there would be no let-up until Una was found. And then, one week later, as hope began to fade, the murder squad, a highly mobile Garda unit responsible for the investigation of serious crime, arrived from Dublin. The team was led by Detective Superintendent Dan Murphy and Detective Sergeant John Courtney, a West Kerry man who would go on to become head of the unit. The first order of business was to follow up on some of the witness statements. Martian remembers getting a knock on the door. It was the evening of Monday, the 25th of October 1971. Una was now missing for almost two weeks. I was very tired that night and I wanted to go to bed. There was a dancer somewhere thinking Kill Moon, but John Harty came in and asked me, he said, um, you wouldn't mind coming and we want another, take another step and they're asking another few questions, you know, so. And my parents didn't know. I didn't even have time to go into the house. I just, I just went with them. I, I hadn't a clue where I was going. And you'd already given them a statement? Yeah, twice. And I had the statements were given were out in the shed. They made sure it was out. My parents weren't uh, around. It was out in the garage, in, inside, inside in the garage. It was never in the presence of my parents when the statements were taken. It came on two different occasions. And I told them the truth. I'd never seen around my movements, you know, so. So you're taking the tram guard yeah. station. You've no clue what it's about. No, the, get into the car and, and who was in the car? I think who was driving was 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 Gildy. I didn't know who he was then. I, I knew Harty because he was a local guard, but the, the, it was Gildy who was driving and there was another detective and it was an Avenger car. I remember the Avenger, that's what the police used to use. And they went up that way and they went up by the pile and, and come by the pile and Gildy just blessed himself. And I still got to say, what? What's going on here? Unbeknownst to Martin, his pals Dick Donnelly and Marty Kerrigan were also being taken to Trim Garda Station in what was a planned operation involving separate teams of detectives calling to their homes to bring them in for questioning. All of them had assisted with the investigation by not only wading through the mucky fields during the search for Una, but also by giving multiple statements about what they saw and heard on the evening she went missing particularly the sighting of the Ford Zodiac parked in front of the three acres with nobody inside. However, by now, the murder squad had taken a number of statements that were at odds with what they had told the local guards. Remember earlier we mentioned that Dick and Martian had driven Marty's sister Katie down to Barron's shop for a bale of briquettes. Well, each of them was sure they arrived at the shop well after seven o'clock which would have been around the same time people heard the screams from the three acres, which was over two kilometres away. But a local guard there called John McKeown cast some doubt over their version of events. He claimed he pulled up outside that shop at precisely 6.48pm. When asked how he was so sure of the time, he said he was waiting for a call from England. He said he remembered Dick Donnelly's bronze-coloured Zephyr pulling in and Katie Kerrigan getting out and going into the shop. He claimed Dick's car left at 6.53pm. 
another precise timestamp. And interestingly, this was the very same time Anne Gohan said she and Una stepped off the bus. Remember? Seven minutes to seven. Exactly. If Garda McKeown was right, that would have put Dick Seffer in the area much earlier than he claimed, and well within the window of time that Una went missing. More than that, two other witnesses placed Dick's car in Portistown Lane, driving towards the route Una would have taken, again within that small window of time. Despite all of this contradictory evidence, Martin didn't stray from his original statement. He was adamant he hadn't seen Una that night and insisted he had nothing whatsoever to do with her disappearance. We ended up in Trim, uh, down the stairs room, and I remember being brought in and Courtney was there, Gildy, with his, what would you call it, check jacket. I always remember that and the real sour face on him, but it was called a murderer. Where is she? The game is up. Jesus, and I said, what, sir, what are you talking about? He said, where is she? We know you took her. We know you came up down the road. I says, I didn't see you and I know nothing about her. And the more I kept denying it and, uh, and telling the truth, the more violent and vicious they got. It was gone to a stage I was actually afraid to tell the truth. It was that bad, you know, it was gone for hours. And they kept saying, come on, we know you did. Tell us, we'll bring you home. And I said, I never seen her. And you could see Gildy and that frog in his mouth. So... Detective Inspector John Courtney and Garda Brian Gilday grilled Martin for four and a half hours straight. They were convinced he was lying about his whereabouts that night. But Martin insisted he was telling the truth. He repeated his version of events over and over and over again. He told them Dick picked him up from work at about 6.40pm before they went to collect Marty. He told them they brought Katie down to the shop for a bale of briquettes. He then went home for his dinner well after seven, maybe 20 past seven. He said it was 7.45pm by the time Dick and Marty picked him up again. But they refused to accept his story and Martin couldn't understand why. John Courtney was a member of the Guard, the Technical Bureau, the official term for the murder squad, but Brian Gilday wasn't. At the time, he was a rank-and-file Garda based in Balbriggan in Dublin, some 50 kilometres from Trim Garda Station. His reason for being there was dubious. On the Saturday after Una went missing, he was drafted in as an extra body to help with the search. He wasn't a detective, and yet here he was interrogating Martian. When he and Courtney didn't have any joy, another member of the murder squad, Detective Inspector Hubert Reynolds, tried a different approach. He was real nice and real soft-spoken. He says, uh, have you any clothes and stuff? I said, why? He said, we're taking you to Mount Joy. And I don't know, at some stage, I don't know, it was him that said it or, or Courtney says, uh, come on now, the other two have gone home. They've dropped you in it. And here was me saying, Jesus, what am I, what's happening? I, and I, all of a sudden then, I started making up a statement. This is very late into the morning. And with, with their assistance, saying I seen her which was untrue he was me in the barracks me on I'm trying to get myself home rather than being locked up in Mount Joya. to me that was I'd never see the light of day again 
they said, you'll never see our parents. I thought they just could lock you up. I didn't know, it was just green back then, knew nothing about the law. And then all of a sudden, then I went back and said, Jesus, Martin, what are you saying? And I, I told Ren, I said, this is not, I said, I said, this is not true. I'm not saying nothing. He wants me to sign, sign something. I said, I'm not. I said, this never happened. I said, what am I saying? He left, and that's when Gildee came in and just just looked at me and drew out. And I was, where was I? I don't know, was I sitting on a chair, I think? And I went, the chair went flying, and I went. He'd hit your box. Yeah, he went, geez, no, a merciful box. Had he laid a hand in your No, I'm sure he might as well have, because he was, he was pure mad. He was a, a lunatic, that's what he was. Like, he was just, before that, he was banging the table and kicking chairs around the place. I was just waiting for a box. It was, it was actually, it was the worst thing about it, the, the phys, not only the physical, but the mental torture that, that had me. I, I was going to be locked up. As far as I'm concerned, Martin Dick was going home. They said they were after dropping you in and make it. They were after making up a story. They didn't actually say make up a story after dropping you in it. Come on, you tell us then we'll bring you home and we know more about it. And that's how the whole thing started. And when they brought you to Trim Garda Station, it was about 10 o'clock at night as far as we yeah, can see. Yeah, yeah. That sounded about right? About 10, yeah. It was around that, yeah. Had you been working on the farm that day? Um, Monday, I think, where was I that day? I think it was, yeah. So you'd had we, a full day's work behind you. Yeah. You were dragged into the Garda Station at 10 o'clock at night. Mm. Can you remember when Gilday threw the box and things got really heated oh that was around four in the morning I think around, around that time I think half three or four yeah around that yeah and had oh, you I had was... any rest before that no 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 I was exhausted tired you know were you offered solicitors or anything like that no I never mentioned nothing mentioned no were you allowed call home or no, no nothing no no mention of home or solicitors or nothing no were you told you weren't under arrest uh, no that was never mentioned nothing like that though was ever mentioned it was just more where is she what you do with her tell us now we bring you home sure. just we were just I was I just take back then I knew nothing never set foot in the police station in my life you know never and be confronted by these to me they were lunatics later and having gone without sleep for 36 hours Martin decided to take what he believed to be his only way out he told the guards what they wanted to hear. He told them that he had seen Una that evening. He claimed they met her at the bridge on Porterstown Lane and that Dick asked her if she wanted a lift. He said Marshy opened the passenger door for her. When Dick drove past her house, he claimed Una started shouting and demanded to know where she was being taken. While trying to get out of the moving car, he said Marshy grabbed her hand, causing her to crash into the window face first. She just went limp, he said. Soon afterwards, he said Dick told him to get out of the car, which he did, and he said he then walked home alone. After making this false confession, Martin just went blank. But one thing he does remember is the guards bringing Una's parents and the local priest in to see him. They were brought in, I think, late. Was it, I think it was Tuesday, late Tuesday, I think. Oh, I couldn't believe what was happening then. I was, it was actually, it was, it was, I was, it was, how would you call it? I was that wrecked. And then bringing them in and, and Gildia and, and Superintendent Kay and telling me, you know, 
We're telling you now, you tell her what you told us. I'm warning you now. So I brought upstairs. I never forget the room upstairs. And next thing, Mr. and Mrs. Linsky came in and, and, and the parish priest, Father Cogan, and 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 now when he was at the door, one of them, Gilly and, and Kane, and go oh, and tell her, tell her, you know. Clenched fist at the door. Clenched fish and me, and me trying to trying to say I never seen her. I was afraid. You know, clean fish, yeah. And then she started, I, 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 I couldn't say it. And then she started falling, holding on to me. I thought she was going to faint. So I started making up another story, a different. Oh, Jesus, like a horror, it's a horror movie. That's what it was, that place. It's not clear how the Linskys became aware that Martian and the others had been taken to Trim Garda Station. Winnie claimed her eight-year-old daughter told her but the feeling at the time was that they'd been tipped off by the guards. In any event, Martin offered his hand to each of them when they entered the room, and why wouldn't he? He had done nothing wrong. Also, the Conmies and the Linskys were neighbours. They knew each other well. Martin had grown up with Una. There were only a few months between them. After greeting them, he asked Winnie if he could have a word in private. Patrick Linsky and Father Cogan left them to it. Winnie would later say that Martin told her he believed Una had been taken to a flat in Ballymun. Martin would later say he only told her that in the hope that he'd be let out and that the truth would set him free once and for all. That's exactly the way I was thinking, to let me out. And, and, and the fact that you see when you're, that you're innocent and you know you didn't do it, but then she's tell them to what they hear, get out of that place. I, yeah, I couldn't take any more. I just couldn't take any more. You're probably just thinking... Mm. This that is a maniac. He's going to kill me. He's going yeah. to throw me in the Oh, joy. I did fear for my life in there, honest to God. With did him. you really? Yeah. I did, honest to God. I said, what's going to happen next? But I was in that shock in there. Watching the horror movie, that place. By the sounds of it, Winnie Linsky was very upset. She mm-hmm. became faint at times. Was yeah. Pat Linsky saying anything? No, to he me? said nothing at all. Just kept looking down at the ground. And the parish priest? Yeah, I remember, I actually remember the. Father Cogan, I asked to see him to come back in and tell him the truth that I never seen her. And I said, they're after fighting the life I'm to make and I'm after making up a statement just to satisfy them. With the way out of Trimgarda station now in his sights, Martian signed his confession at half past seven on the evening of Tuesday, the 26th of October, 1971. A few hours later, Marty Kerrigan did the same. And as far as Martian could tell, his dear friend had also been on the wrong end of a heavy-handed interrogation. I, me- I remember meeting Marty then. I was put into a room. I think we were given a cup of tea. That could be on a Wednesday, I think, as far as I know, or Wednesday morning or something. And Marty inside in the corner and blood on his shirt. And he's like a... He wasn't even able to talk. He was that traumatised. More than myself. I said, Marty, I'm after making a statement. And so did I. He says... Two of us were there, like, I, just, I don't know how you describe us, we were just scared of our wits what was going to happen next. Like Martian, Marty also went into survival mode. He too would have said anything to get out of there. And his made-up confession picked up where Martians had left off. After Martian got out of the car, Marty claimed he and Dick drove out to a bridge between Clonny and Lucan, where they hid Una's body in some bushes. Later. He went on to say they left her at a tree near a woodland in Rathbegan. Later still, he said they actually left her in a pond. 
unsurprisingly, Una's body was not found in any of those locations. At no point were the three young men formally cautioned and they were only told they could go when Marty's father challenged the legality of their detention. Marty's sisters, Katie and Anne, will never forget the next time they saw their baby brother. When he got home, he was um, hardly able to walk. He was um, sore, said to get up off the chair. His back was sore, his legs were sore. And just, and he said it was from beatings he got. Do you remember seeing him again now? That must have been very distressing. Yeah, I did see him. When he got home that night, he was uh, very shook because they were let out of trim and told to walk home. Was it unusual that they were taken to Trim Garda Station? Dunshockland would be closer, would it? Dunshockland would be closer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. nothing to it, but it just struck me as unusual that they would have taken them all the way to Trim, potentially making it even more difficult for you to find them. Yeah. Did Marty tell you what had happened in the Garda Station? He did, yeah. What did he tell you? He told us that they were tortured. He said they were beaten. He was hit with a chair across the back and uh, beaten across the head, the legs, everywhere. And uh, they weren't allowed to sleep, even though they were dozing off asleep. And uh, they get a slap across the head, woke up and uh, nothing to eat. And then having to head off walking home through the fields. They had no money. They came out onto the road somewhere around Dunsany, which would be outside Dunshockland. So they had crossed the fields in the middle of winter to get home. And luckily somebody that they knew from over that direction picked them up and dropped them home. At this point, you might be wondering what happened to Dick Donnelly. Well, he too said he'd been victim of the murder squad's aggressive interrogation tactics. After the guards took Martin and Marty's confessions, they then turned their attention to the eldest and the biggest of the three amigos. Dick accused guard the Brian Gilday of repeatedly punching him in the head and stomach and of attacking him with a hot fire poker. But try as they might, Dick stuck to his story. He hadn't seen Una that night, he hadn't picked her up in his car, and he certainly hadn't dumped her body anywhere. Here's Mary Conmey's recollection of when her brother Martin returned home that day. Dick was with him too. It's a sight she'll never forget. I just remember being in the kitchen when they came in. Martin walking in the door was just, it frightened me. Um, Because he was someone who worked outdoors and he had a good kind of colour. But he was snow white. His face was just white and one side of it was all, was swollen. And my mother um, kind of put him sitting, there was, we don't know, a range, a Stanley range and sort of an armchair each side and one was my father's, the other was my mother's and she put him sitting like in her chair and 
I was standing near there and I just remember looking at him and seeing just over, like near his ear, just bald patches where there was no hair. And I, it was just shock. And then Dick came in as well with him and Dick was standing in front of the range and Dick's really tall. And both his earlobes were bluey black, swollen. And the talk was going on in the kitchen, I think, and Kerrigan was there. Anne Kerrigan was there. In fact, that night sparked the beginning of a romance between Anne and Dick Donnelly that would see the couple go on to marry and have two kids. Here, Anne recounts what her future husband told her about his time in the Garda station. That's actually when I met him. I would have known him. He was a friend of Marty's for years. That's when we got together after that. A few months after that. And... Dick was also obviously taken in for questioning along with the two boys um, not long after Una went missing. Did he share his experience with you about being in the Garda station? Can you tell us about that? He was in a very bad state when he came home. He he had poker marks on his arm with a hot poker across his back where he beat him with the poker as well. They they gave him an awful doom. Yeah. He said he was roaring when they put the poker into his arm. He was literally tortured because he wouldn't have signed it. If he had have signed it, he wouldn't have been tortured. He would have been probably charged, but he wouldn't sign anything for them. He kept saying, I didn't see her. We didn't see her on the road. She wasn't on the road when we went by, but they didn't want to hear that. And every time he refused to sign, they put the pen in his hand and he put it back down on the table. And every time he did it, he got a a hiding. He told me, he said, they could have killed me, but I was not going to sign something that I had nothing to do with. So after the boys were released, word of what happened in Trimgartha station quickly spread through Porterstown Lane. Everyone knew what they had said. Martian and Marsh had hoped the truth would set them free, but would it? When I went out to the road, there was a big slogan painted on the road. And it said, Murderer. In the next episode of Inside the Crime, we'll bring you yet another shocking revelation in the search for Unalinsky. It would once again bring the people of Porterstown Lane to their knees. But Martin prayed it would prove his innocence once and for all. We were hoping, yeah, that something would be discovered, that whoever done it left something, that there was some clue or something there that it'll show it wasn't us, you know. Tensions had reached boiling point on Porterstown Lane, and it wasn't long before a misplaced act of vengeance led the murder squad back to the Linsky's farmhouse. Pull a child into a car like that. It was terrible that we couldn't stop it, you know. You know, there was, there was just too many. Subscribe to Inside the Crime on the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud or wherever you get your podcasts. We've also built a really useful website where you can find an easy to follow interactive map of Porterstown Lane as it appeared in 1971 
With all of the landmarks relevant to this story clearly highlighted, you'll also find photos and other pieces of exclusive content at newstalk.com forward slash deeper inside the crime. We're really confident that someone out there knows something or saw something that could help advance Unalinsky's murder investigation. If you are that person, please contact the Garda Confidential line on 1800 one. You can also email us at insidethecrime at newstalk.com. It's never too late. Inside the Crime was hosted by me, Frank Rainey, produced by Ashling Moore, with sound mixing by Lachlan Hart. New episodes out every Tuesday.